Good morning. Today we are in the second week of the sermon series we kicked off for this fall entitled Always Ready. And we get the title of the sermon Always Ready from 1 Peter 3.15, where the Apostle Peter tells us, challenges us as believers in Christ to always be prepared, always be ready to give the reason for the hope within you. In other words, in our interactions with people in the world, in our dialogue with others, when they ask us, why do we believe what we believe? We are to be ready to give them compelling, rational, biblical, personal reasons that we have embraced about why we have hope, why we have the hope of Christ, why we trust in Christ, uh, why we try to honor Christ in our lives. And, and last week we kicked out the sermon series off with the question of, does God exist? Okay. And um, we looked at different indicators that point to the existence of God. Things like the fine-tuned universe and our search for meaning and purpose and on and on, our moral standards that we all seem to have, things like that. Uh, if you're interested, take a, take a listen at some point. But uh, today we come to perhaps a, a, it's, a, it's a classic conundrum. And throughout history, maybe it's the biggest barrier that people have had to coming to faith and belief in God. And that is why does a good God allow suffering and, and pain and evil in this world? And why doesn't he do something about it? We look at the news, for example, these past few weeks, and we see natural disasters. Hurricane uh, Harvey, okay? Uh, lots of flooding and, and damage in Texas and Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, loss of lives. Hurricane Irma, again, tragic loss of lives in the Caribbean, in Florida, the Carolinas. Massive earthquake in Mexico, again, more loss of life, economic damage, and countless others we could cite. And it's understandable in the midst of these tragedies to ask, where is God in this? These questions, of course, are not limited solely to natural disasters. Again, we look to the news. Terrorist attacks, like the, ones on, the one on the, uh, on the subway, the train in London, or the ones that we've read about this past summer where terrorists would drive cars into crowded streets, killing people in Spain and other parts of Europe, or bombs going off in Africa or Asia. Violence, genocide, racism, all cause pain and suffering. And that's not even mentioning disease and accidents. And the question comes, why does God allow suffering and pain? Why does he allow evil in this world? John Stott, one of the most distinguished Bible teachers of the last three centuries, writes this. The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can be possibly reconciled with God's justice and love. It's the age-old conundrum that a lot of us encounter. We tend to think of it this way. Either God wants to stop suffering but cannot, which means God really isn't all-powerful, as we say he is, or God could stop suffering but chooses not to, which means God can't really be all-loving as we say he is. You know, I think of uh, Lieutenant Dan. Remember Lieutenant Dan in the more movie uh, Forrest Gump? Remember Lieutenant Dan? He, um, he, gets, he loses both of his legs in the Vietnam War. He becomes bitter and angry and sullen and suicidal. 
He gets angry at God, gets angry at life. And there's a scene where Lieutenant Dan and Forrest are in a, in a, in a hurricane, and the waves are threatening to, to sink Forrest's shrimp boat at any second. And Lieutenant Dan, remember what he does? He climbs the mast of the ship in the wind and the rain and the storm, and he, he shakes his fist at God and yells at God in defiance. Suffering often produces this reaction. We might scream literally at God, as Lieutenant Dan did, or what is even more common, we might just decide that we're going to have nothing to do with God or anything to do with His church. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know people who have landed there. But if there was ever a person with a better right than any of us to ask a question about suffering, it was a man whose story is actually narrated in the Old Testament. It's the passage uh, that that Lee read a second ago. And the man's name was Job. And the Bible describes Job this way. It says he was a blameless and upright man, that he feared God and shunned evil. And yet, as we read his story, Job's life fell completely apart. In rapid succession, he loses all his livestock and his wealth. He loses his servants. He loses all his many children. All of them die in the same day. And finally, adding insult to injury, he loses his health. You know, I've I've known people who have overcome economic ruin, who have overcome the crushing loss of family members, and who have battled back against disease and pain. But I have never encountered anybody like Job who experienced utter desolation in every area of his life simultaneously. So if there were ever a poster boy for the question of suffering, it would be Job. Listen again as he describes it in his own words. Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The turning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning and my flute to the sound of wailing. You know, for some people, this this question, the problem of evil, the problem of pain and suffering is is an intellectual puzzle, sort of a philosophical or theological debate. But for others... For others, these words of Job could be describing their own lives because suffering and pain and the experience of evil is a daily reality. Their harps are tuned to mourning. Now, as we continue to read Job's story, we find several possible answers to the question of suffering. So let's look at his story. There are three friends named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Is it any wonder that we don't name our kids after these three guys? They come and they sit with Job in his misery, which is a good thing, right? That's often the best thing we can do. When somebody's hurting, it's to go and be with them. So they come and they sit with them. They start out doing the right thing. But then they open their mouths and it all goes wrong. Listen to what they say to Job. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? In other words, they're saying, it's your fault. You have caused this suffering by something you've done in your life. We know you have a spotless reputation. We know you've been greatly blessed by God, but you've lost it all. 
They're saying we live in a cause and effect world. Your suffering is a result of your sins. You must have done something. Jesus Christ categorically rejects this view that all suffering, all suffering is a result of personal sin. There's this powerful story in, in, in John 9 where Jesus, where we, we read this. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. This is no cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Now, these are important verses because so often when we experience suffering or we see evil in the world or pain, our first reaction is, what have I done? What did I do? Why is, why is God allowing this? Is God punishing me? And often the answer is, you've done nothing wrong. Yet Jesus declares over and over, and the scripture declares over and over, that actions do have consequences. And those consequences sometimes include suffering or pain. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A, a man reaps what he sows. For example, if I sow my body with alcohol and drugs, eventually I'm going to reap the consequences of that. If I mistreat or emotionally abuse my, my wife or my children, their coolness, their anger, their distance, their maybe even hatred toward me, are the consequences of my choices, my sin. If I play fast and loose at work with the rules, if I'm unreliable, if I'm bad at my job and I'm fired, I have nobody to blame but myself. So sometimes suffering in life is indeed the result of our choices and our sin and nobody else's. But not always. We must be very careful not to attribute Suffering to somebody's choices. We have to be very careful about that. Because isn't it clear that sometimes suffering is also the result of other people's choices? Other people's evil? An obvious example would be a, a family driving down the road, going, minding their own business, and a drunk driver comes along, crashes into them, and in a, life, in a second their lives are over. They didn't do anything wrong. Or a child who grows up in a home where they're neglected or ignored or abused. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just born into the, in the wrong home. Or in parts of the world where, where hunger and oppression and slavery and genocide reign because of human greed or economic injustice or, or hatred. They were just born in the wrong country. They didn't do anything wrong. So sometimes suffering is a result of our own choices. We know that. I mean, that actions do have consequences. And sometimes suffering is a result of the choices of others, which doesn't seem very fair, but that's how the world works at times. But what about natural disasters? Earthquakes, hurricanes, famines, flooding, and so on. Couldn't God prevent those if he really wanted to? For the answer, we go back to the beginning of creation. Over and over in the first few chapters of Genesis, God sees what he makes and he, he says, he declares it good. Suffering and evil were never a part of God's good creation. 
but they entered the world because actions have consequences. The Bible tells us that the disobedience of of Adam and Eve, of, of, of humankind, has this consequence. Genesis 3, because of what you have done, the ground will be under a curse. It will produce weeds and thorns, and you will have to eat wild plants. You will have to work hard and sweat to make the soil produce anything until you go back to the soil from which you were formed. In other words, the world fell when humankind fell. The world, God's good creation, is now a place of weeds and thorns and toil. The world itself is decaying. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans 8. Yet there was a hope that creation itself would one day be set free from its slavery to decay and would share the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that up to the present time, all of creation groans with pain like the pain of childbirth. So from all this, we can conclude that evil and suffering and pain are alien intrusions into God's good world. The world is not as God intended it. And when Christ returns to put everything right, as the Bible says that he will, the Apostle Paul reminds us that not only will we we be restored and made new, but creation itself as well. So in essence, the problem of suffering, when we think about it, is correlated to God's gift of free will. The problem of suffering is also the problem of human free will. Let me explain. God created us with a privilege of free will. We can make choices. We have the ability to choose. We can choose right. We can choose wrong. We can choose to serve and love God. We can choose to serve and love others. Or we can choose to exploit others, to ignore God. And some would ask, well, given how things have worked out, why would he do that? Why Why did he not just make us with a default mode where we would always choose what was good? That way we would never sin, and then suffering and evil and pain would never have entered the world. Ever wondered that? But if God would have made us that way, there's a couple of things to think about. One, he would be a controlling parent. We would never grow. We would never mature. We would never really understand love, because love always involves a choice. You choose to love somebody. You make a commitment to somebody. You make a choice. If you didn't have a choice, it wouldn't be love. We could never have a real relationship with other people if we didn't have free will. We could never have a real relationship with God. We would simply be robots, not real human beings created in God's very image. The Bible tells us that God himself is love. And therefore, he makes us with the ability to choose to love him or not. And with that ability to choose comes the possibility and, yes, even the probability for evil and pain and suffering. This is not a perfect analogy, but think of it like this. Blaming God for suffering is like a teenager who was caught speeding, arrested because there was an open liquor bottle in the car, and and she ends up spending the night in jail. And then her dad comes to pick her up the next morning, and she says, this is all your fault. You let me use your car. The blessings of freedom have consequences. And one of those consequences sometimes is suffering or pain. And as we've seen, some suffering is the result of our own choices and sin. Some is the result of others' choices and sin. And some suffering is the result of living in a creation itself that has fallen 
Well, sometimes it's simply wrong place, wrong time. Let's get back to Job. He had these three friends who weren't much help to him, but thankfully for Job, another friend shows up who is a bigger help. His name is Elihu, and he comes on the scene with a slightly different viewpoint on God's suffering. And his viewpoint is this. God is present in the midst of your suffering. Listen to these words. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free of restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. So this is the the biblical view that while God does not produce suffering, God at times, in his sovereignty and wisdom, sometimes allows suffering for a greater good. It can be that we grow in a relationship with him, our dependence upon him. It can, grow, it can mean that perhaps we are prepared to help somebody else when they go through something that we have gone through ourselves. I've seen it happen in my own life. God at times does allow suffering for whatever reason, sometimes a mysterious reason, for a greater good. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, has developed this view with a famous visual symbol, God's megaphone. Only read his words. God whispers to us in our pleasure. God speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to a final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the only opportunity some can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. I got one more thing I want to say, but before I conclude, I want to make sure that I'm, you don't hear me as trying to give you a formulaic answers for suffering and pain. I'm not trying to diminish or minimize perhaps the pain or suffering that you might have or you might experience in our world. Um, I'm not saying that uh, that we we can't even even have questions or doubts at times or wonder why. I mean, the Psalms are full of examples where people ask questions of God. Why? Do good people suffer? Why do bad people prosper? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to our nation? And so on and so forth. It's not wrong to bring questions to God. Because, but sometimes God in his wisdom and his love allows suffering to bring us to a point where we trust in him more, where we experience more of his goodness, where we're open to hearing from him and trusting in him more completely. Let's return one last time to Job. Finally, it's God's turn to join the conversation. God has been listening for quite a while now. And God doesn't accuse Job necessarily, as Job's three friends did. Instead, God reminds Job of something that Job has forgotten. He asks the question, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Again, this doesn't mean that we can't sometimes ask questions, like a child asks a parent, why is this happening? It's okay to do that. It's understandable. But we must be careful not to move from the, 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 the searching of a, of a child asking a parent for understanding and clarification or wisdom to defiance and anger and bitterness and accusation. Because God reminds Job of this yawning gap that separates Job the creature from God his creator. 
And he reminds Job of all the mysteries of God that are far too deep for Job to comprehend. And when God finishes his speech at, at the end of Job, Job's words change from, from questions and doubts, maybe even a tent of accusation, Lieutenant Dan shaking his fist at God, to humility and to silence and to repentance and trust. Surely I spoke of things, he writes, he says, of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job ends his conversation with God, acknowledging that he is the creature and God is the creator. And why God allows suffering to continue, or why some suffer more than others, in some instances will always be a mystery. But two things we can conclude with are sure. Jesus said, I have said this to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, we're going to have trials and tribulations. I mean, when you think about it, if Jesus himself wasn't spared persecution, suffering, unjust pain, why would we as his followers be spared? In fact, we're told to rejoice because we're identifying with him as our Lord and Savior and we're learning from him and we experience his presence in a more powerful and personal way. And then Jesus promises this, that in him we can have peace because he has overcome the world and through our faith in him, we can as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful that you are God who has created us in your image. And that means that we can know right from wrong. We can choose to do right. We can choose to do wrong. We can choose to love you or to reject you. We can choose to use that privilege to help people or to exploit them, to be self-centered or to be others-centered. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes the problems we encounter in life are of our own making, but not always. Sometimes they're of others' making. And that doesn't seem fair, but it happens. And sometimes, Lord, it's simply we live in a world where sometimes bad and difficult things happen. We live in a fallen world. In all things, Lord, help us to trust in you and to know that though you do not cause suffering, you allow it at times. And help us to look, Lord, for what you are doing in the midst of that. Perhaps it's shaping us and our character. Perhaps it's preparing us to serve and help others who go through something similar. Perhaps it's simply to give testimony to your goodness and your strength in the midst of difficult things. Perhaps, Lord, we may not have an answer. But yet help us to trust in you. And to know that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are kind. And Lord, that in the end, suffering and evil and pain will be eradicated and peace and joy and love will reign the day, will rule the day when you return and restore us and restore our world as you have intended us to be in it to be. We thank you, Lord, and we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.